alcoholic. I love each and every one of you too, because it's necessary. Uh, Amy, thanks for asking me down here. This this is uh, I'm not going to strip. <laughs> um, thanks for having me here. You know, this meeting really means a lot to me, a, a whole lot. And uh, as I tell my story within the hour here, you'll find out why. Um, the last couple of months, I've been asked to speak at places that I've uh, told my story nine years ago out in Oregon and eight years ago down in San Antonio. And it's caused me to reflect on my life, on what's happened in that period of time. And uh, I've been doing this, talking at meetings like this around the country, uh, because I'm one of the sicker members of AA. God sends me far, far away to hear things that I, he knows I didn't hear Wednesday in my home group because I'm a slow learner. But I started out doing it 19 years ago at the 26th International Young People's Convention in 1983. And that's how I started. I just started sharing my story. They go, you got to hear this goofball. This guy's nuts. And uh, so my story, my traveling around the country and being exposed to other people that have helped me grow spiritually started with this convention in 1983. I was asked to be a, a speaker. They wanted somebody that got sober young in a local area to be a kickoff speaker on Thursday night. And I thought, well, who's going to be there on a Thursday night? And there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. It just blew me away, and it seemed like everything unfolded from that. Uh, I was sober four and a half years. My wife was six months pregnant with our first boy. And uh, if you would have told me that my life would have unfolded the way it has the next 19 years from that day in 1983, I would not have believed you. There's no way that I, you could have gotten me to believe that I would become a happy, whole, useful human being most of the time. You just couldn't have gotten me to believe that. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about myself before I get going. I've been sober since October 5th, 1978. <laughs> uh, I've had the same sponsor since I walked in the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous on April the 10th, 1977. Uh, I've lived in the same house for the last 17 years. I've been married to the same woman for 22 years. Uh, my two boys are 17 and 18 years old, and I've been on the same job with the same company for 22 years. And I just wanted to share that with you because I had no idea that I was going to be coming around here 19 years later to report back to you on what my life was like in 1983. And sometimes I forget to tell people what my life is like now and what, you know, where I live and who I live with and all that stuff. And I just want to tell you that and get that stuff out of the way first. That's who I am. That's where I live. My wife, my kids, my job. I've had the same home group since I started coming to it in 1977 called the Giant East 4th Street Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, we meet in Kentucky now. We did meet in Cincinnati and we got too big and moved over to, uh, a clubhouse called the Promises Club. And um, I'm just glad to be here. I'm glad John came down. He calls me a sponsor. And uh, Bill, Bill, Bill's anniversary is today. He's sober 17 years.
Bill lives in Tampa now, but he was 19 years old when he got sober, and he asked me to be a sponsor. And it's been a real joy knowing the guy over the years. We, I think we've helped each other out pretty much, both of us back and forth, just by knowing one another. Um, I grew up in the 60s, and uh, they were a wonderful time to grow up in, man. There was a lot of stuff happening. I just loved it. Every day, something different was happening. You know, and I know you're young, but puke smells like puke in the 60s, just like it does in the 21st century, all right? And uh, in 1963, I remember Kennedy got killed. The president got killed. I just, we couldn't believe it. I had just blown away. And then uh, a few years later, uh, in 1968, his brother got killed. Martin Luther King got shot. And they had the uh, Democratic National Convention in Chicago, and they're beating the hell out of all these people. And they have college campus riots all over the country protesting the Vietnam War. 1969, they went to the moon. I mean, Walter Cronkite's bringing in the Vietnam War every night, 6.30, every night into the living rooms of everybody's homes, watching the news. Something was happening every day. And it was a wonderful time to grow up in. And I grew up as a kid in the 60s and 70s, and I looked at all that stuff, and I couldn't wait to jump in somewhere. It was exciting to me. It was fantastic. And uh, <laughs> everybody in my family's alcoholic. We all weren't sick at one time. Three out of four of us are sober, and that's pretty good. My mother's sober 31 years. My brother's sober 18. I've been sober 23. My father's never found sobriety. But we all weren't sick at the same time. Everybody got sick at different paces, you know, and there was nothing out of the ordinary about my life. I didn't, I wasn't one of those disadvantaged kids. I didn't grow up feeling weird and looking weird. I mean, I had this hair my whole life. I, I wasn't cool till Jimi Hendrix came along. But I just, I don't think I felt any more weird than any other kid growing up. I think feeling weird's part of puberty. And uh, thank God I didn't have to experience puberty until I was in my 20s in AA, you know. <laughs> thank God for alcohol and drugs. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> nothing really seemed out of the ordinary in our family. We had some weird relatives. My mom's dad, he was a drunk. He was a heavy drinker for years. He drank 40-some years and, and quit because the doctors told him he had poor circulation in his legs. So he just stopped. I thought he was weird. You never stop just because a doctor tells you, you know. I could see myself saying, no, get me a wheelchair. I'm not done drinking yet, doc. Rolling up to the liquor store with no legs. I mean, a doctor telling me to stop is not going to do it. But Grandpa stopped because the doctor told him to. But before he stopped, Grandpa was entertainment for us. He would come down the street. We lived on a little dead-end street. Today they call them cul-de-sacs. There are no outlet dead-ends where I grew up. And uh, we lived the fourth house from the end. Everybody knew everybody. If a strange car come down the street, we knew they didn't belong there. I mean, everybody just knew everybody. And my grandpa was a heavy drinker. He drank Echo Springs whiskey almost every day. And he had a buddy of his that was a yellow cab driver. And they used to like to get drunk and come down our house. And they would come down the street in a yellow cab, and my dad would go, oh, God, Jubal, your father's out there. Get him. He's drunk. And she'd go outside. Me and my brother, we're about 10, 7 to 7 and 10 years old. And we're looking out the window, and Dad's just pacing because <laughs> Grandpa's drunk. They pop the trunk on this yellow cab, and they have a possum on a leash. And he's walking around drunk in a neighborhood. 
and his buddy, the yellow cab driver, is walking with the, with the possum and my dad's going, oh God, get your mother too, get your grandfather, get your father, get somebody, get him out here. Everybody's going to see, get him, get him, get him, get him. He was freaking out, and me and my brother are going, that's cool, <laughs> that's cool. Grandpa's got a possum on a leash. How, <laughs> how many people's grandpa do you know have a possum on a leash? I mean, but we didn't think anything about that stuff. I mean, I, I was grandpa. And then on, on my, uh, same thing on my mother's side of the family, her mother's mother lived in what we used to have as state mental institutions. And she lived there for 40 years of her life because of alcoholism. She was 24, she died when she was 64 of ovarian cancer. But we all used to go out and visit grandma. You know, with su summertime, everybody piling a car, aunts, uncles, cousins, we'd go out to the state institution to visit grandma. <laughs> and grandma would be sitting there babbling, spitting on herself in the commissary. She'd be all buzzed out on pills. And uh, I didn't think anything about it. I thought everybody had somebody weird in their family and sick. And I come to A and I found out we do. <laughs> everybody I know in A has got somebody sick in their family. <clears throat> but I didn't think anything about that. I didn't feel inadequate. I, uh, I'll be honest with you. I was a happy, positive kid. I was. I enjoyed life. Man, I had a zest. I had an adventure for life. My mom had a hard time holding me back because once I got my idea on what I was going to do, there was no stopping me. I mean, that's just the way God built me. I can't help it. I was born positive. And uh, <laughs> I guess I was about 10 or 11 years old, joined the Boy Scouts. That's what kids were doing in 1966, whatever. And I uh, had fun doing that. It was fun. By the time I was 14 years old, I was an Eagle Scout. I had God and Country Award in the church. General Westmoreland gave me my Eagle Scout Award. That was pretty cool. He was in charge of the Vietnam War. It was his war. And uh, he called it my army. And then I had a guy that was my sponsor as a young boy, President Langston, the University of Cincinnati. He offered me a free college education at 14. But what I didn't know at that time was I was alcoholic. And it didn't matter what people's plans for me were, alcoholism had a different plan. I was 13 years old. The guy across the street, 16, he says, hey, there's this girl over at the high school wants to know if you want to come to her party. I said, well, who is it? And he tells me, and she's 18 years old. And, you know, when you're 13 and she's 18, that's called opportunity. <laughs> and I says, yeah, I'll go. You know, it's like, I'm not worthy. Yeah. What are we going to do? We said, well, her brother's over in Vietnam, and he's sending him pillowcases home of marijuana once a month, and she's got a new pillowcase. You want to try it? And I'm 13 years old. I go, well, yeah. I'd seen that stuff on TV. I saw all those hippies, you know. I saw them all rioting and marching and protesting. I thought I'd try it. I didn't know what that stuff was. Now, believe me, I know this is Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm not here to disrespect Alcoholics Anonymous. But my God, when I was 13 years old in 1967, I wasn't sitting there going, this will piss them off in the next century in AA. <laughs> Uh, I was a 13-year-old kid, okay? I was innocent. It was 1967. People were trying that stuff out. I tried it out. I went over there, and they're, they're smoking these cigarettes that look like American flags, and some of them are brown, some are yellow, some are pink. And uh, before you know it, you know, I got these headphones on. I'm listening to James Gang, Funk 49. I'm smoking this stuff. And, all of a sudden, I opened my eyes and I went, oh, my God, look at that. I mean, it was like my senses were on volume 10. And it was like, wow, this is like going to a carnival. Never had to leave my seat. Whoa, look at that. But the first thing I noticed was 
Man, my mouth was dry. Wow. My tongue is sticking to the top of my mouth. I said, do you have anything to drink? And they said, yeah, kid, come on in here. And it went into the kitchen, had one of those swinging kitchen doors, and, and somebody knocked a can opener on the floor. They're all high on this Vietnamese pot, and they thought that was the funniest thing they'd ever seen. They're all laughing about this can opener. And I'm laughing about the can opener. I go, I can't believe I'm laughing about a can opener. And this guy says, here, kid, have some of this if you're thirsty. And it was one of those big bottles of Bally High wine. Oh, you too, huh? I love that. The hair on my arm kind of tingles when I think of Bally High. And I start, I crack the top. It was one of those big bottles, one of them big round ones. And I start hitting on that, and they're still laughing at the can opener on the floor. And I'm hitting it, and they're still, 15 minutes went by, and I took the last swig out of that bottle, and they looked around and go, hey, you're what? I said, you're supposed to pass that around. I said, well, nobody told me. <laughs> I'm 13 years old. I don't know nothing. I drank that whole bottle. It tastes like fruit punch. Mmm. 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 You ever drink one of those big peanut butter malts and you can't stop sucking on Mmm. Mmm. Till you get down to the bottom. That's the way I was with that Bally High. And you know what I remembered? I remember feeling like a million dollars. I remember these older people accepted me into their crowd. I remember, like Bill talks about in his story, he felt like he had arrived and was accepted by his peers. Now, looking back on it, I know that's not what happened. I know there were a group of 18-year-old guys going, give the kid some wine, watch what he does. He's like a monkey. You know, the more you give him, the more he does. <laughs> they were using me for entertainment now, and I didn't know it, but I felt like one of them. I felt like I'd fit in. Uh, and I didn't become alcoholic overnight. I didn't become obsessed. I didn't start stealing money out of my mother's wallet yet. You know, I wasn't there yet. Uh, some guy come along, I'm 14, he says, here, try this LSD to give you a better understanding of yourself and the world you live in. Oh, wow. You know, in 1968, people were trying to find themselves. They were trying to find the truth. And I said, what does it do? They said, it makes you see things that aren't there. I said, really? He said, yeah, and you're the only one that's going to see him. I said, well, what will you be seeing? He said, I'll be seeing something else. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, but that's why you take it, to see things. And remember, if it gets too hairy, it wears off in about eight or ten hours. So whatever you see, just remember it's not there and enjoy it. And I says, okay, <laughs> I'll try one of those. That, that marijuana stuff, that was like going to a carnival. Let's try this. I am bizarre. I love that. Did it about 400 times. I loved it. Just thoroughly loved it. And uh, it was the era that I grew up in. And I'm sharing these things with you because I want to make a point. Doing drugs doesn't make somebody an alcoholic. I mean, I did a, I answered 400 times. That's not what makes me an alcoholic. It's what happens when I drink. That's what makes me an alcoholic. I've done it all. Got hooked on crystal methadrine, did mescaline, did sopers, did, did it all. Stole some Thorazine out of somebody's camp at one time. I'll never, ever do that again. <laughs> ever, ever, ever. You know how we are. If one's good, two's better. And they were 500 milligrams, 1,000 milligrams. And I'm laying on my mother's patio at 9 o'clock in the night on the stones, on the, on the, on the floor, outside. She goes... Why don't you come in and go to bed? I said, if I could get up, I would. <laughs> wow. I just thought, oh, I just, I never did that. It hurt. It just ached. Oh, I never did that again. And the whole time, the drinking's picking up. The drinking's picking up. 
you know, my hair's out the hair. I have one of these big afros. We turn your head, and the hair moves. It catches up to it. And uh, my drinking's picking up. We're drinking Boone's Farm apple wine. Yes. <laughs> Damn, that felt good when people. <laughs> that is the Strawberry Hill Keontae Thunderbird. It's just. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. And I don't know what people drank around here in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s, but Stroh's beer was the big thing back then. And everybody had quarts of Stroh's. Everybody's drinking Stroh's. And I'm, I'm having a wonderful time. And I'm doing all these other drugs, but the drinking's starting to pick up. Just a little more. A little. Just, it's working its way in there. And before you know it, I'm running away from home at 16 years old, having a bad day. Got in an argument with my mother. I didn't like what she said. I said, bye. And I hitchhiked to Miami Beach with nine cents in my pocket in February, no coat. And uh, I wasn't taught that in the Boy Scouts. <laughs> I, my emotions were getting scrambled from drinking all this wine and doing all these drugs. And you know, one thing about LSD and black mollies and all that stuff, they let you drink. And you can just drink and you don't fall down. You just keep going and going and going. And uh, my thinking and my decision-making process was fried, just fried. And if something didn't go my way, I'd say, bye. And I'd go all the way to Florida, going to find myself. I found myself in a trailer park down there, North Miami Beach. I'm a busboy in a Chinese restaurant at 16 years old. I have hair out to here. I'm the only white guy in there. Everybody else is Chinese. I'm going, egg roll? <laughs> I mean, I didn't. I mean, how do you go from... President Langsam offering you a college education and General Westmoreland saying, I like young men like you in my army too. Egg roll? I don't know. But that's alcoholism. And I kept trying to brush it off. Brush it off. I'd hitchhike back to the trailer park, get picked up by weird people that wanted to do weird things. And I'd say, no, let me out this light. And I'd go, that didn't happen. That didn't happen. And all of a sudden I'd get homesick. I'm 16 years old. I go back home. I'd run away when things aren't going well. Again, I'm 16. I just turned 17. It's 1971. I get thrown in jail in Cordial, Georgia for hitchhiking. I had hair out to here. I mean, it was out there. And the guy with me had hair down to his butt. And uh, they didn't like that in Georgia. <laughs> they, uh, they didn't like anybody if you weren't from Georgia. And this guy that pulled me in, this guy that was hitchhiking over, he was big and fat. He had the mirror glasses on. He walked, waddled up to me and goes, you white or black, boy? <laughs> and uh, I didn't know your rectum could tighten up that fast. Just, oh, my God, we're in trouble. And you don't realize I've just seen that movie Deliverance. You know what I mean? And I, <clears throat> I can hear that banjo wailing in the background. I go, oh, oh, my God, you know what they're going to do to us, you know? And uh, the other guy, he was a skinny sheriff's, sheriff's deputy, and he said, we tie these boys up, throw them in the swamp. Nobody know a thing about it. And I thought, I thought that movie again where he goes, sure got a pretty set of lips on him, don't he? <laughs> we're, we're really in trouble, you know, because that movie was made 60 miles from where they picked this up. And I thought, this stuff's real, isn't it? I mean, and they were having fun with this. They knew we were a bunch of runaway kids. They were, they were just toying with us, but it scared me to death. And the point was, I didn't know why I was there. I was sober. I couldn't even give you an honest explanation of why am I in jail in Cordial, Georgia, being hassled by a fat guy with mirror glasses. I don't know. I couldn't say, well, I was trying to find myself because that didn't pan out. Uh, I didn't know my decision-making process had become scrambled by alcoholism. 
And uh, I went back to Cincinnati again. I ran away again. And, and finally, I got in so much trouble. It was either go to prison or go into the military. I went into the military. Make a long story short, I signed up for four years. I could only handle a year and a half, and I had to get out. I didn't know I needed a drink until I got out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. That's a bad place to find out you need a drink. I'm in the bottom of a ship. I'm in the bottom of a ship with boilers and turbines. Just, and I'm sweating. And I'm working 16 hours a day, and I'm standing on a four-hour watch getting four hours of sleep. And I'm going, this is a bad idea. I don't know why I did this. I don't know why. I, I don't know why I went to the Navy. I should have went to jail. <laughs> and uh, I, I told this guy, I says, I made a bad decision getting to the Navy. I think I'm going to get out. And he laughed. He said, you can't get out of the Navy. Once you sign up, that's it. And I thought, you watch me. That alcoholic, you watch me. I'll show you. And I went through the Bupers manual. I found the discharges, and I went through them, and I found flat feet. And flat feet, I thought, I have weird-looking feet. I can do that. And I played the game to get out. Alcohol said you're going in the Navy. Alcohol says you got to get out of the Navy. I didn't know that back then. I thought I'm going home to help my mother. My mother had been sober in Alcoholics Anonymous for about five years at that time. And uh, I went home to help my mother, and I didn't know that I was a drunk. I didn't know that once I start to drink, I couldn't control how much I drank or what happened. And I just really, I ruined her life. I ruined a girlfriend's life. I would go to work, and I didn't know what the hell was wrong with me. I didn't know I had a physical allergy that once I start to put alcohol in my body, game over. I don't know how much I'm going to drink, and I don't know what's going to happen. That's what makes me alcoholic, and I didn't know I had that allergy. I would, I would make up excuses of why I'm doing what I'm doing, because I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I remember getting a job one time. I went to work every day for two months. I started to drink. I didn't show up for work for two weeks. I couldn't stop. I, I couldn't stop drinking. I'm going to go to work tomorrow. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to make it. And all of a sudden I wake up and it's 10 o'clock in the morning. The birds are chirping. I'm going, oh, no. I, I did it again. I, 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 can't, I can't get to work. And the phone rang after two weeks. And this gets my boss. He's calling my mother's house. He says, do you still work here? I go, no. As a matter of fact, I'm glad you called. I made a career change. I'm going to school to be a truck driver. I'll be in to pick up my check. Thanks. I wasn't going to truck driving school. <laughs> but you got to have something fast to tell them because if you don't have something fast to tell them, they think you're nuts. They think you're crazy. What am I going to do? Say, ah, well, I can't come in. I can't stop drinking. Don't know when I'll stop, but I'll be in when I'm done drinking. No, you, they think you're crazy. And I always tell this story because it's so true. Drunks like me have to have fast answers because they don't know what's wrong with them. I remember passing out with my pants down around my ankles at a party one night. Oh, come on. This is, hey, don't act shocked. Some people didn't even have their pants on. But I, I woke up one time with my pants down around my ankles, and the girl says, well, how come you had your pants down around your ankles? I said, well, I was hot. I didn't even think about it. It was the first thing that came out of my mind, but I wasn't going to say, they were down around my ankles. I don't like that. Because if you let people know you don't know, they're going to think you're nuts. I had to rationalize and justify and come up with lies fast, fast, fast to make you think that there's nothing wrong with me. And you know what? Everybody around me knew there was something wrong with me. Employers, my family, girlfriends. It got to the point where my mother had to kick me and my brother out because now I was violent. I went through jobs. Uh, I'm coming home at 3, 4 in the morning. And I'm 6, 2. My mother's about 5, 2. And I would tower over my mother in her kitchen at 3 and 4 in the morning calling her all kind of names, names that you have used yourself because you drank like I did. 
watching the tears stream down my mother's cheeks because she was afraid of me and she was saying that I was dying in front of her eyes and she knew there wasn't anything she could do. I would come home and I'd throw lamps and just throw them up against the wall and break them. I would throw fans that were plugged in and on. Didn't care. You know, I'd put fists through walls, tear doors off the of hinges. And uh, my mother finally got to the point, she says, my God, Joe, I, I can't live like this anymore. The people in AA tell me I don't have to live like this anymore. I said, those people in AA are crazy. I said, just because you join Alcoholics Anonymous, we have a drink once in a while, you got to kick your damn kids out. Those people brainwashed you. You're nuts. Dad was right. You are crazy. I mean, that's the way I would talk to my mother. It's sad, but that's the way. And I could hear myself saying it, and I'm going, oh, my God, what would you say that for? But I was like I was watching myself, and I couldn't turn it off. It was like I was on a movie, and I couldn't change a channel. And I'm saying these things to my mother, and I'm feeling terrible on the inside, but yet they're coming out on the outside. She says, you and your brother are going to have to get out of here. I, I can't live like this anymore. And she kicked us out. She changed the locks. She got restraining orders on us. We weren't allowed within 100 feet of the house, or we were going to jail. That's pretty bad when you get restraining orders on your own kids. But that's what my mother had to do. And you know, it took my mother talking to members of AA, a sponsor and a social worker, it took her two years to come to the conclusion that the best thing she could do for her sobriety and the best thing she could do for her boys was to kick us out. I thank God. That was one of the best things my mother ever did for me in my life, is she kicked me out. Because by allowing me to live there, this is just my case, I don't know about anybody else, but by allowing me to live there, she was telling me, it's okay, you can kill yourself, you can live off a woman, I'll pay your bills, you can flop out, you don't have to go to work, you can tear my property up. That's what she was saying by letting me.